Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the May Podcast. This month, we're going to be going into a lot of different questions. It's kind of a potpourri of how to get into the business, uh, just a whole mix and mash of things. I thought a collage of questions would be a good way to go about it. We've been doing camera, lens lighting, so this one is a little bit uh, more of kind of the throwback of what I did in the first podcast that we ever released, which was in August. This one uh, will have a, a very kind of a, a potpourri of, of all things. I want to thank all of you for your amazing support on the Inner Circle and this incredible community that you've all built. Badlands is kicking some serious ass. Everyone is loving the look and feel. We'll be sharing all of this with you when I'm able to share it. I am uh, kind of Locked down with uh, AMC till they release this thing in November. I can start to trickle out some things, but November is going to be the real launch of of uh, the new onset with Shane and all those exciting things that will come out of Into the Badlands. All right, let's start with our first question. Do you feel that having an agent is necessary for gaining work opportunities? If so, would you be able to elaborate on this process of searching for an agent as a DP, as well as some prerequisites that agents typically look for before writing an agreement? All right, let's kind of break that down a little bit. So getting an agent, and I just have to pull from my experience of how it worked with me, and I'll share that experience with all of you, and then you can take that because that's really the only experience I have with the whole scenario. When I started out, I started as, out as a key grip that moved up to a gaffer that eventually moved to director of photography. And a lot of the clients that I would get were a lot of my gaffing clients for the director of photographies that I used to be the gaffer for. So when they had a, a real low budget music video that, let's say, Joseph Yako or Daniel Pearl would not want to shoot, 
then they would say, hey, Shane, I hear you're shooting now. Would you like to shoot this? And I'm like, well, I would love to. And that's how I started out. I started shooting music videos right after I made the jump. I started doing commercials, little lower budget commercials. I did a lot of spec commercials. Spec commercials with director friends of yours that are coming up the ladder are really great to do together because these are uh, amazing opportunities for you to really bond as a director. And it's also a great thing as that you helped him out kind of thing. So when he gets a gig, he's going to help you out and all these wonderful things that happen. So spec spots are very, very cool to do. And I probably did, Jesus, I would say 20 or 30 in my career of spec commercial spots that in hopes of helping the director get work, as well as helping you as a cinematographer kind of really go into uncharted territories, maybe something that you haven't done before or is a little edgy or you really challenge yourself. You can make those kind of choices and sometimes mistakes because it's a spec spot and you really want to kind of challenge yourself and making sure that you're all together and you're donating over your time and, and all that stuff. So the spec spot is something that helps build your reel as well as being able to get it out there to potential agents. Now with me, I started doing all this work with these different directors that uh, my other director of photographies had worked with and I was doing kind of their lower budget work and I started to build myself a reel. Now, the reel was nothing that you could say could stand alone as each commercial, but it could stand as a montage. So that's what I started building. I think I built a two and a half or three minute montage of all my works. And then I started shopping that around at the different agencies. And you can look at uh, the different agencies in, in Los Angeles. Obviously, that's where most of the agents are. There's obviously ones in New York has a strong arm as well. These are the places that have the biggest agent pool. And I started just submitting, sending back in the day, we sent out three quarter inch videotape. So I had this big three quarter inch videotape in the box and I made like 20 of these things and I just started sending them out. Out to all the different uh, potential agents. And I had five bite. So you went in and you interviewed with each of these individuals and you kind of, I was more like, okay, here's my work. What can you do for me? How are you going to shape me as an artist? And what is your talent pool? Obviously, they have the roster of uh, the director of photography. And some agents have director of photography. They have production design. They have producers. They have uh, costume design. There's a lot of different sides of the below-the-line side of the business that these agents rep. The agent that I ended up going with was called Stacy Sheriff. Now, she doesn't exist anymore. Her agency got bought out by another agency and she dissolved into that agency, but she was amazing. She had worked for another agency and she broke uh, away and started this little boutique agency that only had, I think uh, at, when I signed on, it only had nine director photographies and she had all the young guns, all these little young gun whippersnappers that were up and coming DPs of the music 
music video and uh, experimental commercial world. And, uh, you know, uh, me and Max Malkin were kind of the big fish in this small pond. It was an amazing experience. She really shaped me and put me in the right place for directors to take notice of me and my work. And we continued to hone my reel. Uh, I was on a commercial run. I had finally, I met this director called Bob Giraldi and I was working with him probably two to three, sometimes seven commercial spots a month. And it was all incredible. I I was making uh, a good living uh, back in the, really the, I'd say two years after I really broke as a director of photography. This director really took me under his wing and I was delivering for him and he was all about uh, us working together and starting this incredible creative bond. Then I went and shot a music video for Donna Summer and Bruce Roberts, and it was for the movie Daylight. Randy St. Nicholas was the director of this music video. What was pretty cool about it was we we did this music video in a way that it was like down this weird hallway, and, and I had you know, backlit it all. And it had all the inklings of, of being in a tunnel that kind of emulated daylight and the whole Holland tunnel thing and everything that was about that movie with Sylvester Stallone. The producers came down to check out the shoot and see how everything was going and stuff. And I guess they went back and told Rob Cohen, the director of the day of daylight that they had gone down to the set and they had seen this director of photography and nobody had ever commanded the set like this DP and that you needed to meet him. All of a sudden I got a call a week later to meet with Rob Cohen and he had a pilot for NBC that he was going to direct. I ended up uh, working on that that uh, pilot. And then he got the Rat Pack. And the Rat Pack was an incredible movie. The script was absolutely brilliant. And I remember going to Bob Giraldi, the commercial director that I was really on a run with. And I said, I got this opportunity to do this narrative film. What do you think? And he goes, Shane, I'm going to be very honest with you. If you take the narrative, when you come off that narrative, you will not have me. He goes, I'm looking to formulate a relationship with a director of photography, and you're it. So if you go and do this narrative project, you can say goodbye to me. And I was really bummed out. I know I'm drifting off this question huge, but I will bring it around. And these are life stories that you really have to understand. And that's what the inner circle is about. Where do you get to hear these inside stories of how a person came up the ladder? And these are personal and that's why you're here. And, and you get, we get to share and these experiences. I went back to my wife, Lydia, and I said, you know, this is what Bob told me. And she said, well, what is in your heart? And I said, well, I have to tell you that this script and this show and and what it's about, I think I can deliver a look that no one has ever seen before. And she goes, well, then I, I think your heart just told you what you need to do. And I went to my agent and I told Stacy that Bob had told me this. And she goes, Shane, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I'm a commercial agent and that's what I do. I don't dive into features. I don't dive into the narrative. I am a commercial and music video agent. And as my agent, I am telling you, if you want any longevity in this business, if you want to be sought after for 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 years, you need to do narrative. And I said, okay, 
I'm doing this thing. So you can see this is how important your agent is. A lot of people get frustrated with agents because they're like, why isn't the work coming? I beat that drum a lot of times. I come off of a feature and I'm like, all right, commercials, come on, where are they? And uh, the guys are like, dude, you've been out for six months. Okay. We got to, you know, get you back in the mix. You know, people have been asking about you and I've been saying no all the time because you're on a feature. So I understand the whole process. They're so important because they really have the bead and the heartbeat of what is is going on in the business and that's their job to really understand it understand what the subtle nuances are how to shape your career these are things that I think about choices that I've made and the choices of what I've done to put myself in the places that I feel are right. And you know, I, I know I made missteps. I know I made wrong decisions. There's movies that I turned down that became massive blockbusters. There's movies that I took that were absolute failures. This is the business. And it's trying to find that director that you absolutely love to work with and also has incredible talent and hopes that you will work together and uh, be this amazing creative force. You look at Spielberg and Kaminsky. You look at Fincher and Cronenworth. Look at uh, uh, Nolan and Pfister. These are relationships that have started very deep down. They continue on and uh, will aspire and, and move to incredible heights. I have been the guy who never wants to do anything twice. I'm always trying to do things that are different and unique. And anytime I get an action picture after I've already done an action picture, I don't like to do an action picture. My agent always tells me that uh, being my agent is very difficult because I don't like to be the guy who is known for just shooting this genre. Well, I like to do dramas. I, I wouldn't mind pigeonholing myself in dramas, but I like to do all different types of things. This is where your agent really comes in. I signed with Stacy, obviously with these commercials and music videos. I had a, a, a reel that was just a montage. And slowly I worked myself into getting commercial spots that could easily stand on their own. And the whole reel started to morph and, uh, and metamorphose into this incredible incredible vision of visual landscape that had all different types of night exterior, night interior, the different looks and all this stuff that play into this. And with that came more work and more interesting directors. And based on the Rat Pack, you know, it was nominated for an ASC award and that took me even higher. And then I started getting asked to do all these movies. The rest is kind of history. And I'm sitting in front of you right now, talking to you, uh, kind of sharing of my 20 years of experience uh, as a director of photography and what this means to me. An agent is very important and what they do in the process of negotiating deals and all that stuff, every single one of them is different. So I really can't get into all that, but this is how it happened for me. Next question. Hello, Shane and company. Brian Tosh here with a question regarding the business. Like most of us Inner Circle members, I'm an aspiring DP. I've worked on many short student films as a grip, gaffer, and DP, but have hopes to get into bigger things. Naturally, I've been a PA on Portlandia and recently on The Librarians. Do you feel 
being a PA is a viable way towards working as a DP down the road? Is there hope for the future being a production assistant? Thanks so much as always, Brian Tosh. All right, Brian. I think that if you're aspiring DP and that's where you want to go, then my suggestion is to be in either the camera or the grip and lighting side of the business. Being a PA will kind of show you the inner workings of what it is like on set, but if you're aspiring DP, you've kind of already been on these sets and understand what it's all about and the politics and everything that go along with it. So I would suggest more than anything, is to understand light and to understand how to shape it and to understand technology and cameras and and everything that goes along with composition and lensing and style and, and mood and tone. And these things are done in very many different layers. Studying architecture, studying art, paintings. I go to so many museums and just sit there and look at paintings and how they paint light. Because that's what we are. We're painters of light. And that's what the masters in artist did as well. They painted the light that they saw in front of them. And so, so much is like going to museums and just ingesting all that. And as well as architecture and looking at architecture and how light falls in architecture and how it falls in spaces and putting that into your, like your mind as an Instagram kind of snapshot. You know, I started out as a rental house, as a lighting grip rental house. I started to understand what all these stands did and what all this gear is and how to rig it and how to shape light and and then eventually work myself up to a gaffer. And that really gave me incredible base to pull from and walk into any room and kind of know how to light it. Not only from an artistic side of delivering that director's vision of the mood and tone and the light, but also from a technical side of knowing what kind of cable I got to run, what kind of dimming I'm going to be using, what kind of lights are going to illuminate the set. All this you get not only from experience, on being on set and all that stuff. Starting in a rental house, so much of that is just like, it's so good as a base. The same thing with camera. You understand what all these different cameras do. I find that the camera side is not as important because lighting, I think, is much more than knowing just the inner workings of a camera and how to load it and how to manage it and how to do all those things. That's something that you will definitely learn very quickly. Coming up the ladder, the lighting side is is truly, I think, the most amazing way to kind of come up the ladder. Or if you're coming in from the camera side, then you start out as an assistant, as a loader, a digital loader. Uh, Then you work yourself up to a second. Then you work yourself up to a first. Then you work yourself up to an operator. And then out of operating, you become a director of photography. That was the way of the past. And uh, I kind of was one of the few gaffers that are in the ASC as the director of photography. There's not very many of us. Most of them came up through the camera side. So I'm definitely the black sheep in that whole side of the organization and how I, I came up the ladder. Next question. Dear Captain of the Death Ship, the Dallas Masterclass was unfriggin' believable. Cinematographers would be stupid not to attend the illumination experience. Film schools didn't even get close to touching the wealth of knowledge I learned there. Thank you. My passion in movies and episodic TV in narrative form. 
I've DP'd a good amount of shorts already, and my current workload consists of a lot of corporate and commercial work, and that just doesn't fulfill my creative needs at this point in my career. What are your thoughts on how to get episodic or feature-length work to guide my career towards more narrative work? Would you suggest finding an agent? If so, how would I go about finding one, and what should I look for in an agent? Your wisdom is much appreciated, Alec First. Alex, yes, I remember you from the DC Masterclass. This is a great question. I kind of answered and touched on a couple of things. Getting into shooting episodic television, well, I did a pilot as my first thing I ever shot as a narrative and then didn't want to do any television after that because I got a feature film and then I started going crazy on features. And back then, television wasn't that great. Television now is extraordinary. And you're getting a ton of director photographies that are like the A-list that want to go and do television. I'm doing that right now. I'm on Into the Badlands, and uh, it's been an incredible experience so far. I never thought I'd want to do episodic television, but the scripts and the actors and everything was never really there. And now it really is. The stories, the scripts, they're amazing. And now with binge walk watching, my God, you know, I'm like... Uh, House of Card Attic, a Mad Men Attic, a Breaking Bad, a Game of Thrones. I just will get on watching one and all of a sudden it's like four is down and I look to the clock and it's three in the morning. I'm like, what the hell am I thinking? With that, I found an agent that had a television division. So that's really the best way to go about getting episodic work. And you have to take your corporate and uh, commercial work that you've done and put it in a reel that is as strong as it can be and shows that you have narrative chops. And that, in hopes, will direct you in the place for people to look at your work from that side of the, the playing field. And you start to get work based on on that. I don't know if there's any real recipe other than just trying to get an agent that has a television side to the agency and just sitting down and talking with them and finding out what you need to do to skew your reel to hopefully put you in the pocket to uh, getting you up for those type of jobs. Finding an agent is a very difficult thing. Back when I was looking for an agent, which I had talked about in the beginning of this podcast, and I will continue to kind of dive into it a little bit because it's a great story. I mean, there might have been 10 agencies in the Los Angeles and in New York, obviously almost sister agencies sometimes with New York and LA, but there were not very many. And there were not very many director photographies. I mean, the ASC, there's 520 members in America, ASC, and then obviously around the globe, there's the pockets of the uh, cinematography societies in different countries, but there, there were not a lot of us. And with this content creation boom and the DSLR explosion, there are a lot of director photographies out there. A lot of people that might not be a director of photography, but they're calling themselves a director of photography and they're buying gear up and they're telling themselves they're a director of photography and they got a red and they got a this camera and a that camera and they get hired. And that's a good way to get experience as well, knowing that, hey, you got this camera and hey, you can hire me and, and basically we'll learn together. The times are very different. One who was my loader on Semi Pro, Mikey Svitak, he shot second unit for me 
on Deadfall. He did second unit also on Active Valor. So that was the first time we'd worked together. And we, I think I shot semi-pro in 2007 and Active Valor 2009. So he went from a loader to a second unit DP. <laughs> but he had won like the American Society Cinematographer Best Student Cinematographer. I mean, the guy's got the chops. He's a very, very talented individual. So he's a young gun and I loved his energy and his passion and he completely understood how I expose and that is huge, right? Because I'm taking you on this mission and you're my second unit DP, you're my eyes on these things and he really understood how I expose and it was perfect on Deadfall, on Active Valor. We did Need for Speed together. So these are the, the movies that I've taken him on as my second unit unit DP, but he didn't have an agent until like four months ago. He sent me his reel and I went through it and was very brutal and, and saying, cut this, cut that. It's too long. You're too all over the place. He honed the reel and he went after this specific agent and they uh, they signed him and he is working like crazy. He is shooting so many of these multi-camera commercials. You create this scenario and you capture it with like 15 different cameras. And he has been learning from me, which, you know, I roll out with 13, 15, 50 cameras and he's really understands how to deploy them and how to put the uh, camera in the right place and how to light with all these different cameras. And he's really created this incredible niche for himself. He works with Tool all the time and uh, Radical Media and all these different production companies where he comes in as that guy that can deliver this type of look with all these different cameras and they're all over the map. They're C300, C500, 1DC, GoPros, 5D Mark IIs, 3s. He's really understood how to blend all these cameras working alongside me. So it's pretty funny because I'll go into Revolution Cinema Rentals where we always rent all of our gear. I'll just see like cases and cases lined up and there's my assistant Derek Edwards that's done like nine. Nine, 10 movies with me. And I go, what the hell are you guys doing? He goes, hey, he learned from you. Jesus Christ, look at all this stuff. And there's like 15 cameras laid out there. And it's, oh my God, I just start laughing internally and out loud. This is what Mikey has gone through. And he's got a lot of experience and it's taken him a, a long time to kind of finesse and get that reel in the pocket before he ever got an agent. So what he did before is just negotiate his own deals. The director would say, hey, I heard you you shot this commercial for this director. What do you got? And he'd show him your reel and he'd say, okay. And then he'd say, this is all we have. And Mikey would say, okay, I'll do that. And that's what you do as a young director of photography. You work yourself up the ladder and you scrape and bear. You do whatever it takes to get yourself out there and to get your experience and to build your reel. And like I had mentioned before, you know, spec spots are very important to do that and trying to get any... If you want to move, Alex, if you want to move into the narrative side, then you got to shoot narrative work. You got your short films. You got all that stuff. That's great. And just keep on building on that. If you want that narrative, you want that episodic side to you. If you want the commercials, then doing the spec spots are going to help with that whole process. But these are the things that are career building and that are shaping. And you got to start negotiating your own deals and just doing whatever it takes. I remember
remember on music videos, I worked with this one incredible director called Kevin Kerslake, and he was a director cameraman, which meant I came in as his lighting director. Well, eventually he became the director and I became the cameraman. And that experience and that gave me being able to use all those things that we did together as my real as a director of photography that just skyrocketed me to my place and how I was able to grab things like the Rat Pack and grab big gun artists like Rolling Stones and all these things because of what we had done together and what we had built together. So it's really attaching yourself with a partner, with somebody that you can create together and go on that creative journey. And out of that, that's going to spur tons and tons of success. Next question. Hi, Shane. In your December podcast, you spoke about how you think the best way for non-Americans to get into the U.S. film industry is to do a master's in the U.S. What would you recommend for people like me who choose to not go to the university and are trying to get into the industry by freelancing? It's difficult to break into this business no matter what way you come at it. Whether it's a master's program, whether you went to film school as a bachelor's, it's all about the building friendships and building relationships that end up helping you come up the ladder. I look at my assistant, Po Chan. I met her as a PA on a Deadwood promo, and she had just recently came in from Hong Kong. She didn't speak English very well. She had been here four or five years, but she wanted to make movies. Now you look at where she's at. At, and she's directed two or three short films. She did the last three minutes in the ticket. She's done a, a lot of commercials. Just being that PA got her in. You just never know how it's all going to work out. An intern sent me a letter and he sent me this letter and he said he had sent it to over 300 ASC members requesting an internship and I was the only one that got back to him. And that intern or let's say mentor, he started a mentorship at Revolution Cinema Rentals and at Hurlbut Visuals, and he started and built his way up that ladder inside that division, and I just started to see what he gravitated towards. He was like a, a walking manual. He could learn anything. It's like, okay, learn the inner workings of the C500. And he knew it very well. Learn the Codex, learn the Gemini. He was kind of my instant manual. And there was a person before him that was the same way. He was hugely technical. He came in as a studying to be a director of photography and we called them together. We called them the Wonder Twins. And these guys are incredible. They really put in the time and the commitment and the excellence to be part of my team. And right now they've done two or three movies with me. They are the Wonder Twins. They're incredible individuals that are technically very on point as well as have a great creative passion. And what this person's passion was is the movie. And he loved RC cars and RC helicopters. So he became the movie tech. And then the 
the other person's passion was the guy was a computer genius. He went to Cupertino and, and uh, back when Jobs was there, was just a computer genius. And he became my DIT colorist, really getting into my headspace of how I like color and how I like LUTs and all that stuff. And he became my DIT and, and my digital loader and the person that knew every codex and every Gemini and how to program it and how to do all these things. And these are the ways that they got into the business. I got into the business, you know, starting at a rental house, Gripen Electric Rental House in Boston. So if you don't use a master's program, you got to just get boots on the ground and try to get yourself in any way, shape and form in this movie business. Whether it's starting in a rental house, starting at a camera rental house, starting with a production company as a PA, all of these things lead to you meeting somebody that you befriend. And that friend is always like, he ha might happen to be a director at USC. That's where he just got out of college and he's doing this PA gig to get experience. And then I out of his contacts at USC, now you become contacts and you become friends and you say, hey, I'm a director of photography and this is what I really love to do. And hey, how about if you shoot this short little film for me and then you do it and then you become a creative collaborative team and see how these things blossom. It's all based on relationships and it's all based on you just getting your foot in the door and being incredibly persistent and being much more of a go-getter than the other person that's working right next side of you. You know, if I look back on my career and how much have I worked for free in the 20 years that I've done this job? And I'd say if you had to quantitate in 20 years, I probably worked 10 years for free. Just quantitatively. I mean, you do whatever it takes. At this point in my career, I still offer up my services to go location scout a commercial with the director before we do the tech scout. That's for free. They're not paying me to do that. I'm doing that because it's prep that's going to make the job better, that I'm going to be able to expand my job creatively because I don't have to think on my feet just one day and we can't get any of the cool stuff where if I had a week in advance, we could do it and make it work for the budget and plan it out in advance without just having the tech scout and then you're shooting a day after. So these are the things you have to do as an individual to really set yourself apart. Hello, Shane. Could you please tell us your views on old vintage lenses? Ah, now, see this potpourri? I went from career building agents into, hey, what do you think about vintage lenses? Russian and Japanese for capturing video on DSLRs. Have you ever used them? Would you recommend them for low-budget indie filming? Thanks for your time. Kyber in the UK. There's a Japanese lens that I love, an old vintage lens called the Kawa. And I've done several blog posts on these. It's pronounced Kawa. Some people pronounce it different ways. I don't know. It's uh, spelled K-O-W-A. And they have a line of, I think it's like a 15, a 19, a 24, 25, a 32, a 50, a 75, and a 100. These lenses are pretty amazing. They flare like no other lens. They give you what I call the sunny side up egg flare, where you have the sunny side up egg and the white yolk. They give you that beautiful gold yellow yolk in the center and then a really light, light yellow flare outside of that. I call it the sunny side up flare. Russian lenses like the Lomos, uh, anamorphics and stuff, I've used those. 
I think they're incredible lenses. I love the lower contrast of them and their distortion and how they really are very three-dimensional in their anamorphic lenses. You know, these lenses are back before computers and they're all handmade, creating a spherical lens or, or an anamorphic lens that had distortion qualities and all that stuff were, you know, the norm. And uh, now we're engineering lenses to be much flatter, bringing the background closer to the actor. There's that side of it all. I've, I've done many blog posts about about that. But with this and saying, I love these vintage lenses, if the vintage lens look works for your story, then I think it's it's awesome to use that stuff. On Greatest Game Ever Played, I use the old, old, like 1962 glass because the Baltars and the other glass that was from the 50s were just too difficult to work with. You couldn't focus, couldn't make a movie with those damn things. These older glass uh, really worked very well and, and helped with that whole period piece of the film. So I think using these on, uh, on DSLR and all that stuff. It's good. I mean, obviously this glass is softer. It's not as sharp. So you're working with a DSLR that has a lot of compression and not so sharp as well. So you're going to add to the softness effect. It's like the Alexa and the Red already have a softer sensor than let's say the C500 or the C300 or, or the F55 or F5 or Sony A7S or any of the Sony series. They're very sharp. The Panasonic's as well, very sharp. These have uh, those sharper aspects to the sensor. So putting and using this vintage glass on them actually really helps. Instead of using diffusion filters, I always try to use older vintage glass to kind of take the edge off of these sharper cameras. But the Red Dragon or the Aria Alexa, you really don't need to use soft vintage glass to make them sing. It's already built into the sensor. All right, next question. Hi, Shane. I would like to ask about using diffusion filters. Do you use these filters all your shots or only some shots when you shoot Need for Speed and Active Valor? Thanks in advance. I love this transition, right? We just went from older glass and me talking about how I use the vintage glass instead of using diffusion filters. Well, there's always times when you're going to need that diffusion filter, especially with, you know, going in for close-ups on an actress that might have some imperfect skin or maybe you need some help. I have been using diffusion filters. My favorite is this one called Digital Diffusion that Tiffin makes. And it's really beautiful because it doesn't defocus the eye, doesn't make the eye soft, but it does make the skin nice and creamy. So digital diffusion is one of my favorite and on Need for Speed and on Active Valor, I use diffusion just a little bit dealing with the females on that story. But most of the time it was pretty El Natural. I didn't uh, diffuse much on Active Valor. On Need for Speed, I did every time I went in for any of the females' close-ups. I used digital diffusion half or one, depending on the thickness that I wanted to go for. Diffusion filters are like a double-edged sword. They're great in what they do, but then they sometimes limit you in flares. You know, you can't really light with backlight that much. You really have to control a lot of the, the light off the glass, which is all good. It's no problem. You can do that. If I was going to make a consistent look for the movie from a wide shot to 
to a close-up and I wanted this kind of diffused vibe, I would probably go with a with a net that you put on the back of the lens. It softens the image, but you can shoot lights and you can shoot the sun. You can flare the hell out of the lens and it doesn't milk out the image and blow all your contrast. That's what I would do if I wanted to go for a very, very vintage look. I'd use the net into the Badlands, which we're on right now. And this is not a vintage look. This is a 200 years in the future. So we want it very filmic and very sharp and very crisp. And even though we're dealing with gas lamps and there's no electricity, or if there is, it's only in different places and it's gas lamps and oil lamps and, and horses and carriages and just a couple cars and everything that this story is all about. It's not a period piece at all. Uh, this is uh, futuristic. So we wanted to go for uh, very colorful and very saturated and playing with different tones that within a frame there are all the same tones but still colorful. It's a kind of a unique look that we're trying to go with this and it's very exciting and obviously I'll be able to share more with you in the future. Diffusion filters, like I said, not a big fan. I only use those every once in a while for going in for the close-up. The ticket, Poe wanted in this dream sequence when they ran out and stole the dress and their outfits that it felt like these bloomy lights, the street lights bloomed and everything had this glowy kind of feel. So we actually went to Tiffin and had them make these filters called glimmer glass. And if you look at the filter, what's really cool is it looks like somebody just took a dulling spray can, but it had silver flakes in it and you sprayed it onto the glass and it had this amazing shimmer to it and it bloomed the lights in a very unique way, but still held contrast. There's all different types of filters out there and they do all different types of things. And, uh, but most of the time I don't use them. Um, I usually take a specific glass to help in the diffusion process or use smoke. Next question. Hi, Shane. Loving the podcast. I've listened to every one of them from start to finish, like a sponge. Anyway, the question I have is regarding ADA filters on the lens. Have you ever shot a night for day scene? Not day for night, since HMI lights are, to some of us, very expensive option. Do you think it's a viable option to shoot a day scene at night using only tungsten lights with an ADA filters on the lens? Will this work or will it look fake? Should I rather use the sport fixtures from Granger Lights. Speaking of the Granger Lights, the ones I found on the website has 4,000 degree color temp bulbs in them. Now you mentioned that they're after a thousand hours, uh, they burn in and will color temp will rise as well after a hundred hours. Or do I need to look for 6K bulbs? Thank you for the inner circle. It is truly awesome. Cheerful greetings from South Africa, Benny. So Benny, shooting night for day, I would not suggest. You're looking at an ADA filter that takes about two and a half stops out of your lens, and then you're shooting it at night. So you're going to need a lot of light and a lot of firepower to be able to do that. And yes, it is going to look absolutely fake because what happens with day is there's an ambience that you don't have at night because you have the sun and that sun is blasting all over the place. It's 
millions of miles away and the sun illuminates the earth, comes down and, and uh, you experience it every day. It bounces around and ricochets off windows and walls and there's this ambience that you don't have at night because at night the shadows go dark and that's kind of the vibe. So you, to create that kind of vibe, you're going to have to pound even more light into all these white bounces all over the place to be able to create this white ambient to fill into the shadows and make it so it's not so nightly. I would say that would look incredibly fake unless you have a massive budget. So you're back and shooting days. So days can work in very many ways. You can use reflector boards. You can use mirror boards. These are things that, that ricochet the sun and bounce the sun. You can use ultra bounces, all these things that don't require HMI lights. Then turning to the sports fixtures, there are bulbs that are bluer. And I think you just got to go online and seek those out. Yes, the ones that you have found are 4,000 degrees. I know that there are colder ones out there. The big thing that's changed is, and this is this conserving energy thing, which is all wonderful and green, but it's definitely affected our lights that we have to deal with. You take my Batten lights, for example. George Bush killed my R30 uh, 85 watt spot. You can't find the damn thing anymore. It's completely vaporized off the planet. So by that being vaporized, that's what's happening with the sports fixtures. Because in 2002 and three, when I bought these things, they were at 6,700 degrees and would burn down to 6,000. Now they're at 4,000. And that's all just in reducing the energy. And by reducing the energy, you're reducing the the color temp. I know that's kind of where it's all gone. I, I don't know where this leads us. I haven't dove into that whole sports fixture thing for a while other than showing you guys how I lit and girls, uh, how I lit the three camera stuff with the, with the sports fixtures, but you can see it required a good amount of gel on those babies to get the green out. The sports fixture way is definitely a way to go as long as you're able to manicure it. But if you have natural light and reflector boards and some mirror boards, you're going to be able to mimic daylight and shape and, and light that way as well. In the inner circle, I do a whole huge how I light day exteriors and it's awesome. I think you guys are girls are all going to love this immensely. It really dives in deep to, to how I shape and, and control natural light and in all different ways with HMIs and with reflector boards. So you can see both sides. Hey, Shane, first, thanks for being so willing to share your knowledge and experience. It is really helpful having your website to go to. I was wondering, what are your thoughts on Roken lenses and Roken versus Canon EF lenses? I just have never been a big fan of those lenses, and I think it's because of their field being so uneven. And when I talk about a field being so uneven, I'm talking about the field from left to right, the lower right and lower left corner, the upper right and upper left corner. The focal plane, I find, on these lenses is very uneven. And when you get using it on DSLRs, which have a full frame sensor, it even skews it even more because the depth of field on that sensor is so shallow. It falls off a lot more on these full frame sensors with these lenses. So I've never really been a big fan. I know a lot of people have uh, love their Rokinon and that's great. It's just never a lens that I've gravitated towards. 
Hi, Shane. I have a couple questions regarding LED lighting. Ooh, now the potpourri slides into lighting. I love this podcast. First, what is your opinion of LED lights? Second, can you share any tips for working with it? I have a few LED lights that I often use for corporate work, and I just love the convenience of them. No heat, battery powered, mobile, and dimmable. All on the flip side, when I use them, something just feels I can't quite put my finger on it. But if I had to put it in a word, I'd say artificial. Thanks, Darren. Well, Darren, you are exactly right. These wonderful light panels that get you out of jail, as I call them, having that dimmability and the ability to like slap on a on a brick battery on the back and just run and gun with these things is one thing. The color is another. And it's because most of these LED lights are not full spectrum. So by not being full spectrum, they don't have the full color spectrum. And they look artificial. They look fake. And most LED lights out on the market, and I'd say 92% of them, do not have a soul. And that's what I call it. An LED has to have a soul. And the LED has to be able to emulate daylight and tungsten light perfectly to have that soul. And there's only a few out there that do. Airy, and I would say Felix. There's other manufacturers that are trying their best to make these lights as full spectrum as possible, but when it's all said and done, there's not very many on the market. And the Felix are the closest that I've ever seen to a light actually emulating what a tungsten light does. And I did this little demo in the Illumination Experience where I took a Felix Q500, bounced it into a white card, and I had a, an Airy 1K Fresnel right next to it. And I just did AB, and you saw it up on the screen, switching between the two of them, and they looked absolutely the same. I know if I had put a light panel up there, it would look artificial and it wouldn't have that color depth. Now, a lot of us are shooting on 8-bit color. So imagine if you're taking your 8-bit color, that is all the bits that it can handle, and then you're using artificial lighting with these LED panels that are not full spectrum. So you're going to get a very artificial look because you don't have the color space from the camera to see that depth and dimension and you don't have the light unit itself that sees that depth and dimension and color. You really have to choose the LED lights that you love. And I've really chose two brands. Let's say three brands. The KinoFlow Celeb 200, 400, 400Q. Those lights are absolutely beautiful LED fixtures. They're absolutely stunning. And it's taken me a while to understand how to use these lights. And fathers and daughters, I could have not lit the thing without them. And, and into the Badlands, I'm using them a ton as well. So these lights are true color, full spectrum, amazing LED lights. The next manufacturer is Airy. These lights are very good. They are full spectrum LEDs as well. There's some lights that can do all different wacky party colors and stuff. So that's all cool as well as daylight and tungsten. And then you have the Felix lights, which I think out of all the LEDs, I would choose Felix and the Kino Flows. They're pretty incredible in their look and feel and full spectrum quality. This is a perfect example. The Felix can do a lot of different things. Not only can it emulate a tungsten light, not only can it emulate a daylight light, it can then emulate urban lights. And tungsten and daylight cannot. 
no matter what filter pack you, oh, I'm going to put the urban vapor pack on it, or I'm going to put the sodium vapor pack, uh, all these different vapor packs that Roscoe and Lee and all these manufacturers have come out with get you close, but it never matches. With the Felix, I found that you can match with a little gel, half CTS, on top of the light itself, I can match sodium vapor lights perfectly by taking the green hue on the back of the Q500 and spinning it all the way to green or back just a little. Because every sodium vapor light has a different amount of green in it. Some are younger than others. Some are the newer technology that use less wattage. So with less wattage comes more green, some less green. It's, it's, they're all over the map. Finding that light that has that hue adjustment and, and a sole really delivers an incredible look and feel. And these lights I cannot speak more highly of. And the Illumination Experience Tour really opened my eyes up to what the possibility with these lights are. This would be my last question. Hey Shane, I've seen all of your videos and I'm a big, big fan of your work. I have questions for you and would love for you to answer them. How bad is barrel distortion in lenses? Is it preferred a little or do you always want rectilinear lines? Okay, that's his first question. It is the preference of the director and yourself as you're designing the look. When I shot Need for Speed, I showed the director four different lenses, Scotty Waugh, and we chose the Cook S4 Primes. When I showed David Dobkin on Into the Badlands, six different lenses, he chose the Leica Summicrons. The director is looking at this and we're looking at what it does to the skin and what it does to the background and what it does to all these different things. Is it flatter? Well, the Summicrons are a little flatter than the Cooks. The Cooks definitely have more barrel distortion and it has that 3D quality where it pushes the background away from you. But he really liked bringing the background closer to the actor and to the scene. So the Summicrons worked very well. Now they were not as sharp as the Summiluxes. The Summiluxes were very sharp, had really good contrast. The Supercrons had a little softer contrast and not so sharp. And that's what we ended up going with. It's really getting in there, looking at lens tests, uh, looking online, you know, diving into as much information. I try to provide as many different lens types as possible for you all to make your decision. And Into the Badlands is going to have a whole series of five different lenses for you to look at so you can see the quality of them as well. And then you can choose out of that list. And that list is pretty extensive. It's the Cook S4 Primes. It's the Cook S4 Minis. It's the Sumalux Cs. It's the Sumacron Cs, both of those Leicas, and then the Airy uh, Zeiss Ultra Primes. So we'll be releasing that test in the coming months so you can really see the difference with all those pieces of glass. How important is lens sharpness? Well, I kind of answered that one on the other questions that we've kind of dealt with in this podcast so far. Lens sharpness is important it is for what story that you're telling. We wanted Into the Badlands to feel very sharp and very crisp, so we went with a Leica that was much sharper than let's say an older series of lenses, sharper than the, the Cook S4 primes, but not as sharp as the Leica Sumo Luxe Cs. So it's finding what 
is best for your story. If I was shooting with DSLRs in, in this day and age, I would try to get the sharpest piece of glass possible. And that's what I did on Active Valor. I shot with Panavision Primo Primes, which are incredibly sharp and have wonderful contrast. And that enabled Active Valor to look the way it looked because of that really sharp, amazing glass. Okay, here's the last question. What I don't get is slimming of the face. How exactly is that achieved and also the 3D look? I've seen your comparison videos with the Cook and the Leica lenses and to be 100% honest with you, I did not get the 3D look thing. It's going to be obviously much better to be able to show these things on a 60-foot screen or a 40-foot screen is what I saw them on. You got to kind of uh, go with me on these things, but I could see it on a 15 inch monitor. That is my eye. And what I'm trying to do is to train all of you to see it. So what you have to do is you have to look at the subject in front of you and you have to see what the background looks like perfectly in the Leica test. You know, the one, the fathers and daughters test where it's Leica versus Cook S4 Primes. If you look at that chart way in the back of the rental house that's behind the man and the female model, that chart on the Leica will move 20 feet closer. That is the 3D effect. You use the barrel distortion of the lens, and I think it creates an um, incredible 3D quality. The Cook's kind of, that's the Cook look. It uh, separates you out. It has this barrel distortion that it sends the background further in the deep background, so the person pulls out from it. Slimming of the face. Think about it this way. I'll hope this kind of describes it, because it's very difficult to describe, and I think this works great. A Leica lens, the Similux C, if you look at the front element of that lens, it's an inch and a half wide, maybe two inches. So now take somebody's face and make a two inch round hole in your with your hand and then look at the person's face. Then take both of your hands and create a four inch wide hole and look through that and see how much more you see around the person's face, how much more the background goes away because you're looking through a wider piece of glass. The Cook S4s has a four inch diameter piece of glass in the front. The Sumalux C has a one and a half to two inch. If you're looking at like the Zeiss ZE Primes, the Canon has a one inch. So you can see how these cheaper lenses and smaller diameters have much different qualities based on the size of the glass that's out in front of them. And it doesn't get to like, we'll say, well, a zoom lens has a big front element. Well, it does, but it has very small elements towards the back. And those are still what you're working with. So even though a zoom has a big front element, big piece of glass, it still is it's resolving a one in the center is what it's all based on. And whatever that small piece of glass is, is what it's going to be doing to your face. So just because a zoom has a big front element doesn't mean that it's going to have more three-dimensional qualities. It gets down to the circumference of that and the diameter of that glass out front. And that 
and I hope is the way that I can best describe it to you. And this concludes our May podcast. And I want to thank all of you for listening. And I hope there this is a great potpourri of all different types of things. I hope you got out of it as much as I did in sharing all these wonderful stories and kind of taking you down the path of how I started in the business, how I got agents, what kind of lenses I use, and LED fixtures that have a soul. Thanks. Take care. Bye. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.